Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hello, and welcome to episode number 34 here on the Giant Thinkers podcast. First of all, a massive thank you for all the love and support you've shown with the release of my second book, How to Get a Mentor as a Designer Guaranteed. It's been incredible to finally share it with you all after a year in the making, and your feedback has been overwhelming. If you haven't already, head to gettingamentor.com. You can even get the first 50 pages for free in both PDF and audio versions. By signing up to the Giant Thinkers mailing list, you can opt in via gettingamentor.com. Now, our guest today has been a household name in the photography world for the last two decades. With a Hasselblad Masters Award under his belt, a renowned international Vogue cover photographer, amongst many other magazines, and the main photographer for Victoria's Secret. He has worked with the likes of Scarlett Johansson, Bill Clinton, Halle Berry, Rihanna, Tyra Banks, Giselle, Naomi Campbell, Heidi Klum, Adriana Lima, and the list goes on. He is also incredibly down-to-earth and involved in philanthropic work around cultural collaboration achieved through his fine art project titled Nomad Two Worlds. Will I Am, Hugh Jackman, Sir Richard Branson, Donna Karan, and many others actually presented the first Nomad Two Worlds collaborative art exhibit in New York City in 2009. You'll hear about this project in this episode. Some of the other topics we talk about include how he stayed in front and relevant as an originally film-based photographer when the digital age exploded, photographing Tyra Banks as the first African-American woman on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and why crafting your own version of turning up is the secret to achieving anything. Now, before we dive into it, I want you to take a second and imagine racing against the clock to wrap up three projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. It's challenging, yes, but I believe, and so do our friends at FreshBooks, that the rewards are worth it. As we all know, the working world has changed. The growth and speed of the internet has created endless opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, I'm excited to let you know that FreshBooks has recently announced the launch of an all-new and improved version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. When it comes to the invoicing and accounting side of things, I've found it the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and the most efficient way to get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is packed full of powerful features, including the ability to create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks, and get paid up to four days faster and view when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to all you Giant Thinkers listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com giant and enter Giant Thinkers in the how did you hear about us section. 
Okay, I'm so excited for you all to hear this, so I won't keep you waiting. Let me introduce the incredibly talented and humble Mr. Russell James. Russell James, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast, mate. It really is a treat to have you on the show. Uh, A little background for the listeners. Uh, Russell and I actually met earlier this year at the Emergence Creative Festival in the beautiful Margaret River in Western Australia. So thank you for taking the time to be here, Russell. Uh, What a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Um, you're in New York right now. And um, look, let's kick things off with a little icebreaker question. Uh, yours is, if you could exchange roles with someone for 24 hours, who would you be and why? Oh, I think it'd have to be the one of the astronauts on the current X uh, program that have just gone into space, because I want to know how the heck they not only got into space, but managed to land that rocket ship back on a ship. I mean, <laughs> that is so far into sci-fi. And the, uh, so, and, but I'd have to uh, split that and say I've got a bit of a man crush on uh, Elon Musk. Yes. And um, I'm a Tesla fanatic. So between those two things, those are the, those are the jobs I want, making those cars and land, flying, that, um, flying that airship. I don't, bl- I don't blame you. Uh, he's known as the, uh, the real-life Iron Man, as they say. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm uh, I'm with you on that one. So, mate, where would you say your expertise lies? In probably in a single word, it's it's in creative communication. I you know I started uh, my creative journey really as a photographer, just you know framing things and understanding things through a single frame. Uh, digital burst onto the scene that sort of changed everything. It brought things to life, but you still had to know this sort of this composition, this frame, and this this. Uh, understand this uh, i call it now an art form from the people that have really taught me of communication through uh, visual mediums and now we've had this explosion of um, social media but what it does is creates all these uh, different creative windows that you have to tell one cohesive story whether it's a philanthropic endeavor so i'd say my area of expertise is um i would some people describe it as image making uh branding is a very commercial word but for me, it's about telling a story through multiple windows. Unreal. So, Russell, can you tell us a little about your childhood and how you grew up? I. Uh, this is the point where your listeners could have a rest and take a nap, but <laughs> I uh, because there's no stellar pathway. I grew up in Western Australia in Perth, and I, in a suburb called Wilson. I uh, had a very unique exposure to Western Australia because my father was a policeman who was transferred around the state a lot. And I got a lot of my most impressionable memories come from the northwest of Australia, from Derby in particular, um, which is, you know, about 1,500 kilometres up northwest and those areas. Um, but I grew up in Wilson. I, uh, I sucked at education. I recommend education always is the first and best way to get somewhere. I think the system has made massive improvements since I was there, which is great. Um, however, I didn't do well in school, so I was out and uh, got a job making trash cans, rubbish bins. See, I've been in America too long, excuse me, um, when I was uh, uh, 14, and I uh, eventually went on to um, uh, to get a, a an apprenticeship as a metal worker. I trained dogs. I was in the police force, and I had a cleaning company that used to clean factories late at night called um, Spick and Span Cleaning Company, very original name. <laughs> so, and, uh, and eventually I left, I left Australia when I was about age 24 and uh, I started to 
to get very curious about what was out there in the big wide world. That's amazing. You can't you can't even write that stuff right there. Metal worker, garbage, um, garbage worker, and uh, uh, sorry, a dog. You you said uh, dog trainer, wasn't it? Metal worker, dog trainer. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, and cop, unbelievable. Yes. Um, so, mate, uh, you have one of the most interesting and unconventional paths, um, as you've just described, to being a photographer. Um, for those of you uh, listening, um, you know, uh, and, and may not know Russell's story, uh, Russell, can you share to us about how you got your foot in the door with photography? Yeah, I, photography for me was something that I discovered late in my life, probably um, in when I was aged. 29, which is very, you know, in some regards, it's sort of old to be figuring out what you actually are passionate about. But once I'd locked on to photography as being the thing, I happened to be in Sweden, in uh, Europe. And for me, it became somewhat of an obsession. So I um, had, uh, I basically would knock on the doors of any photographer who would allow me to, to uh, assist them for free or, you know, sweep the floors or do whatever in order to get some technical understanding of photography. And uh, I, I did that um, for many years and I just took photographs of everything that I possibly could, uh, particularly for some reason in North Africa, I spent a lot of time and, uh, that was really my, my pathway to get some technical skill around photography. And that took about six years. Unreal. And so with the, uh, the technical ability and, uh, I guess as you travel, your conceptual abilities start to develop, um, there's a fine line, isn't there about, uh, what people refer to as the big break. Uh, what's your view on that? Yeah, to me, the big break, I mean, throughout a career, there's a series of breaks, but the big break is really the result of your own efforts in terms of discipline, focus, and just continuing. And someone told me probably the most invaluable advice I got was from an amazing creative director in New York City called David Lippman, who um, at some stage took pity on me for being so relentless. And he said, you know, the most important thing, yes, you've got to be creative. But he said the, mo- the most important things you'll need to remember is discipline, discipline your creativity so that you know what you're setting out to do and turning up. And it took me a while to figure out what that really meant. But by turning up, you know, it was, it was about persistence. Um, it doesn't mean being annoyingly persistent, but it means taking on board uh, criticism, understanding what that may mean and reacting to it and continuing to build and grow your creative, your creative set within the disciplined uh, scope. Is there, a, is there a story that comes to mind uh, of you sort of exercising that above and beyond what many people expected? Yeah, I think uh, for me, I had, I had basically, there comes a point where you need to believe in yourself. And I don't know at what point that is to a fault. There, there comes a point where you have enough sort of opinions and thoughts and ideas. So, you know, you ask 20 different people, you're going to have 20 different opinions. Mm. But all, everything everyone has to say that's within that space, it, it can be very, very valuable, but you try and pick what resonates with you. It doesn't mean selectively take something because you want to believe that thing. It's like try to pick what you think is relevant to you. I'd say I had one creative director that I mentioned already that really um, took me under his wing and and gave me an opportunity and 
for me, I had, I had, I was broke. I was insolvent. I had no money. I was living on a boat in uh, outside of Stockholm, um, and I was sort of on my last legs financially. And I, but I continued to sort of invest in my photography by investing. I mean, I would take photographs anytime I could. At that time, I had to develop film, and that cost money. And I went to New York. I'd save up money. It was a few hundred bucks to get from Sweden. I'd kept going to New York because I heard that was the epicenter of the world in terms of photography. All the big brands were located there. A lot of creative opportunity out of there. I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to make it somewhere, I might as well try and make it there because it seems like the same effort whether you try and make it in, uh, you know, any other city of the world or make it there. Um, the greater, greater reward. But I remember the amount of rejection that I suffered going to see agents, photography agents. You know, everybody, when you're winning, everybody's like, you know, everybody loves what you're doing and understands what you're doing. They all, all let's say, take credit. But when you're not winning, when you're starting out, it's a, it's a sea of rejection and you have to really steel yourself up for that in a creative space because it's hard to get creativity um, accepted. And I remember one, one guy who's a very big agent still in the city who I go and see him and he just looked at the second or third picture in my portfolio and then slammed it shut and said, you will never work in this city. Wow. And it was so demoralizing. And I walked out the door and I went to the next meeting. <clears throat> but um, I remember as I was walking, you're kind of in, you know, the walking zombies, walking dead. You're just feeling like, I don't know if I can get myself up off the floor after that one, but you need to, and you need to go on. And I tried to, I, I sat down after I went through my depression and, you know, wanted to throw my book in the river and all those things, try to figure out, what he was reacting to. And then I realized I wasn't appealing to his sense of creativity. And I started to take on board the, the, the opinions of other people. And I also started to form some, some vision around it. In, in any creative space, there is, it seems to be the nature of many people to say, you have to pick a certain lane. Um, it does speak discipline, but in photography, for example, people will say, well, do you do beauty? Do you do landscapes? Do you do structures? Do you do celebrity? Like, what is it you do? And I was just passionate about photography and I was, whether it was a landscape, whether it was, um, I was fascinated with indigenous culture and then of course models and you know those kinds of things were subjects. I was fascinated with it all. So that was a very hard question for me to answer. And that was one place where I had to really stand my ground and say um, to agents that whilst I was ready to focus in certain areas that needed to be focused on at certain times, I wanted to be known as a photographer. I didn't want to be known as a photographer who does hats mm. because I felt like that that was the way I lived. I'd seen so much by that time and I really wanted to be able to um, express it in any way that I felt. Even to this day, I'll engage in a project that involves uh, a Native American tribe and their tribal cultures or I'll be shooting a Victoria's Secret campaign or I'll be shooting for a nude book or I'll be doing still life for a, um, a luxury hotel proposition that's trying to understand who they are as a brand. So, you know, I've got a very diverse photographic uh, uh, portfolio and approach. Um, however, it still requires the discipline of, of composition of what you're about to do, managing your team and, and getting the result that you want to get. Yeah, this is really great stuff, Russell. Um, I think the, the many themes that you've just touched on are going to resonate with the audience. Um, one in particular is the bit where you said you were told that you're never going to get anywhere in this city or with that portfolio that you showed that, that agent. I think that represents uh, so many of what uh, people are going through right now, 
um, have gone through themselves if they're quite established or will go through if they haven't. And then that, that's not to say to be um, scared by that um, because I, I do believe that there is huge growth and gain to be made from that experience. Uh, what what was it that got you to sort of realign your mind and your um, yourself so that although you were kind of um, down in the dumps to some degree, you still showed up to the next meeting. So like what, what was that tiny seed? Uh, a lesson that I learned very early is don't let the highs take you too high and don't let the lows take you too low. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And uh, so, you know, I think that's self-explanatory, but, yeah. you know, there's a, someone says something great, a magazine hires you for a story and you just, you know, you just, you, you go off the charts. If you let that take you, you've got to keep sort of within the boundary. But at the same time, when you get a rejection like that, you've got to put it in perspective and say it's one opinion. And then you also, you know, you've got to challenge yourself and say, what was it about that, that, that person? Did they not like me? Because that could be it too. Um, was there something just creatively offensive to them because of their point of view on the world? Now, I'll tell you a great ironic take on that. Go for it. So fast forward many years, um, you know, a few years ago, uh, I work in a studio called Pier 59 in, uh, in New York, which is um, very popular for a lot of the, the big brands and I, have a, I keep my full-time presence there. And this particular agent had his group around him and I had come out to the cafeteria to have a coffee and they said, you know, without saying names, Mr. Such and Such, would, you know, he's very excited that you're here in the studio and he just wanted to begin to have a talk. And I said, yeah, sure. And then he started talking. He said, you know, your career is going great. There's just so much I feel that you could be doing and more. And I said, you don't remember me, do you? <laughs> he said, no, I said, oh, we met before. He's like, oh, really? So I've been trying to meet you for a long time. He says, well, we did. But anyway, thank you very much for the offer. I really appreciate it. I've got to go back to my shoot. Um, but it's, uh, I'd say that the, there's a couple of things we've got to keep in mind. Uh, I always, you know, remind myself, there's nothing that says I was going to be a good photographer. Some part of it is the creative spark. I loved it. But 99% of it, at least for me, came from hard work and discipline of the creativity. So, again, a great person took me under their wing. Um, I got some great advice off uh, Richard Avedon and another gentleman called David Lippman who sat down and said, if you really want to learn, then forget the magazines, forget fashion and those things. They're, they're of the moment. They're, they're only as valid as what happens today and yesterday. And then it's gone and it's like, what's new? said, all of the things you'll see in there come from the books. Go to the books of the masters. So I went back to the books of Irving Penn, of Guy Bourdon, of uh, William Klein, and I look, and they're they're like lessons in composition, lighting, consistency, um, and again, Irving Penn, someone that can make a cigarette butt as amazingly interesting as a naked woman. It's just like, and I don't know how you say that, but you see the two pictures on the wall, and like, yep, they're Irving Penns, and I think that part of it is the hard work. And you've got to be prepared to do the hard work. If you float along and say, I'm creative and it's, you know, it's just all going to be magically, you know, come together, I don't think you're going to win. I think that you need to have the discipline we talked about, um, you know, astronauts at the beginning of this. And, you know, if, if nothing else, there's an incredible creativity to the vision of someone saying, I'm going to put a rocket into space and it's going to go up there and land. 
but there's an incredible amount of discipline that requires that to happen. And it's the same in creativity across all fields that I found. The people that really do the best, I find to have, uh, they're not loose in their approach. They're very solid in their approach. Their minds are open to take on board the comments of people around them that maybe, you know, when I'm working with a great hairdresser or a great makeup artist, I don't profess to know more about hair and makeup. I profess to have a direction that I would like to take. Um, if I'm working with a great set designer, I look at them as an artist in their own right and I don't look at how I can direct them to do exactly what I want. I look at how can I get the best out of that person and give them the bandwidth and that improves my creativity. What would you say to those that uh, you mentioned uh, you had a sort of interest in uh, indigenous photography, uh, models, uh, nudes, still lifes, uh, commercial uh, work. What would you say to people that aren't sure exactly what style they should pursue? Or, um, yeah, what what would you say to those people? I've had uh, I've had many uh, first assistants. So I have, you have multiple assistants as a photographer or a director in a, in the creative space, just by the, the sheer size and scope of the productions. But you usually have one that is you consider your first assistant, who's almost you know, your, 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 um, intern and the, the, the greatest panic that I see within them is trying to discover what their style is from day one. And I told them, you know, I was shooting for six years in a random learning kind of curve. And then even from the time I got my first big break in New York, which would happen to be, I got contacted and said, would you shoot a model called Tyra Banks for the cover of Sports Illustrated? Turned out to be the first African-American girl on a, you know, magazine and a, and another magazine called um, W, and then Ralph Lauren gave me a campaign. So within all those things, they were very different. Um, but my style didn't really emerge, I think, I feel, until possibly five years after after that. And when I say style, for me, it became about returning to my roots where my interest in Indigenous culture took on a visual perspective and I started to travel back to where I'd come from and photograph things. And I found my style that applies across the board. So yes, I learn a lot about beauty lighting and lighting and composition, but I think to find your true style, it takes a long time. And I don't think you should be in a panic to discover that. I think you should try things, absolutely experiment. Uh, there is a commercial reality. I know that, you know, you want to work. So you have to have a, again, it comes back to the discipline. When I go, when I was even early in my career, when I was hired to go and do a shoot for Ralph Lauren, I looked up and studied what Ralph Lauren was and then thought in my to myself, how can I bring that forward? If it was Victoria's Secret, um, you know, I had plenty of people to ask and talk to about that. And I made sure that I didn't say, take a Russell James pathway. I wanted to add my creativity, but I didn't want to change their brand. Hmm. I wanted to uh, add to their brand. But, you know, your own style comes sometime later. So now I have exhibitions that travel around the world. One is based on Indigenous culture. One is based on collaborative art. One is based on nudes of famous people but they all inherently have my style and people say that they can see one from the other, why, why they're a Russell James project. It takes a long time. That's all I'll say on that one. Yeah, that's really valuable, Russell. Thank you. It's, um, it really is uh, important to hear it from someone like you as well, that um, it's not something that is an overnight thing. And also it seems that it's a continual evolution um, and even though it is a very long time, I'm sure even until now that your style is continuing to uh, grow and evolve um, as audiences and subject matters grow and evolve as well. Um, 
Mate, uh, you've been known to do whatever it takes to get the right shot. You know, even being underwater with Giselle <laughs> on top of glaciers in Iceland. Um, how does the location of a shoot impact the mindset of the person being photographed? Are they more, how would you say, um, you know, into the into the the photo shoot or the scene or um, yeah, like how do those places affect? Well, both you and your subject matter. They they affect me because I have such. A, I, I just have a great passion for travel and exploration. A lot of it very uh, natural, but I'm also really inspired by some of the great architecture of the world. You know, it's impossible to go to some of these great cities and not just feel like, oh my god, someone thought to build this. This is incredible. Mm. Um, so the impact on me is. It just stimulates every sort of creative nerve I have. And sometimes it becomes overwhelming. I look around and see so many creative opportunities where we are that it's almost like I have to breathe into a paper bag because I'm like, it's just a lot. And like, okay, at the end of the day, I've got to bring this down to to photographs. Thankfully, we've evolved to a point where now when you're doing a campaign, whether it be philanthropic, whether it be advertising or whether it be art, you're speaking through many windows. And by, by speaking through many windows, I mean – we still have to frame and compose an image, but then that image has to move and become video. But then there has to be the behind the scenes sort of story of it because it all amounts to how we tell the story. We have so much more, so many more toys and tools to help us tell the story and so many more windows, i.e. social media um, and digital platforms to tell the story. And you asked about uh, evolution. You know, I, I literally wake up, I think, every day in a panic that I will never work again, that I'm done. <laughs> And I, I uh, you know, and I, and you know, my partner of many years, he's like, "We well, just relax." You know, it's like it's been a day. That's interesting for you to say that. Can you tap into that, that a bit more? Yes. So, you know, I think the the art of, I think the day that you wake up and you think I've made it, I totally get it, I I've got this, is probably the the last day that you'll ever start progressing in your career. You've probably plateaued and, and there's not far to go. I feel that it's healthy to have a to be pushed to feel like there's something out there new that I'm not yet understanding, and it's going to affect how I shoot. I saw when the transition of uh, of digital photography, there was this incredible moment of of you know analog photography, which was film that I loved, I was passionate about, and was almost it was almost an absolute uh, defection to even consider digital. And I was asked by Canon Kodak, because they were a collaboration at that time, to secretly engage in their um, development program for the digital cameras. And I looked at the camera and I looked at it one time in my living room, uh, in my apartment with the reps, and I said, I'm in. And at that time, we were talking about a camera that could do two megapixel files that took three seconds to recycle. The camera weighed about um, six kilos. What year was that, Russell? Oh, look, now you're going to date me, but I, I want to think that that was around about um, 1999. That's my guess. Wow. Now, it could be wrong. Um, uh, and it was um, Canon Kodak sort of leading the way. And, you know, so eventually I started to go to clients and say, we've got to make this change. And they're like, but, you know, film is beautiful. I'm like, I know, and digital sucks right now, but it won't always. And there is no way that this does not win because this gives us immediacy that is incredible. Um, so at that time, I would say that digital cameras, the effect was same as watching a soap opera versus a feature film shot by 
Steven Spielberg in terms of quality on the screen. However, uh, post-production was challenged to, to step it up and figure out how to get that same look. And now I do exhibitions where some of it is film, some of it is digital, and I find people saying to me in, in different countries, oh, you know, it's so great to see true film photography because I love it and I don't want to burst their bubble and say, that's a digital file shot in a 1DX. But anyway, you believe what you want. You know? So I say, yep, no, it's beautiful, love film. So I think you've got to be willing to progress and you've got to be willing to keep your mind open and not afraid of what's coming. I see people have sort of fear about the way uh, advertising is in complete turmoil right now. Um, television commercials don't know how to, people that do television commercials and had responses to those don't know how to engage with social media, how important that is. What, I'm, uh, what I've become sort of a student of and also a, um, a, and in some regards I, I hope leading the way on is don't be afraid of it. Let's understand it because ultimately you're going to have to tell a cohesive story. Again, whether it's your art story, whether it's a philanthropic story, or whether it's a, a brand commercial story, you're going to have to tell it through each window. And, and, and you're going to have to learn how to keep your high-end brand impression of whatever you're doing and have it translated across all these different ways, all the way through to the, the behind-the-scenes sort of view of what you're doing because now the behind the scenes is almost as interesting as the actual campaign that it becomes so there's an art to that so i would say that continue to challenge yourself don't be afraid to look at what's coming down the pipeline um i've got a phone call today um scared the bejesus out of me uh, a company that's uh, a very big brand name company that i'm, I'm under <laughs> on disclosure so i can't say <laughs> who but one of the really very big ones and they've got a complete 360 degree system and they said would i travel the world would I prepare, be prepared to be uh, lowered into a volcano and shoot a 360 image, go underwater, shoot a 360 image, go to a tribe that I work with and shoot 360 images? And wow. I was like, you know, send me the tickets. So, you know, let's go. Let's give it a try. Uh, because in some ways I can't figure out how you apply that technology to what we're doing right now, but I want to know it and I want to learn it. Yeah, I love that because you've you've been in the industry for, you know, 20, almost 30 years um, as a professional creative, um, you know, and the, I love seeing that you are embracing, uh, you know, Instagram and Instagram stories have just been released. And of course, Snapchat, um, you are uh, active in as well. You know, that's really important because for us to connect uh, with people such as yourselves, um, only betters uh, the individual and in turn the industry. And as the industry's standard becomes better because we've got access to people like you and, and, you know, for you to even donate your time to speak here, um, you know, that's really admirable because so many people are almost drowning in knowledge, but starving for wisdom. And, and that's a great line. Thank you. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to say that at an upcoming event. And I'm not going to credit you. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> <laughs> Take it, Russell. That's the. Uh, I'm happy with the uh, the, the the exchange. <laughs> no, I will definitely credit you with it. It's terrific. It it explains a lot very well. Yeah, and and look, that's what I'm hearing from from your story. So, um, you know, it's important that that's defined. Yes. Look, there's an overwhelming amount of information and a lot of it useless and a lot of it mind-numbing. And, you know, we've got on one level, we've got the sort of this uh, where we're flooded with meaningless social. Um, on the other hand, I've seen, um, I keep going back to something because it's passionate to me, but I've seen uh, uh, 
gr- um, indigenous groups that have been able to connect through Facebook. You know, like they're just there. I see this dialogue that's happening and Facebook is already old in many ways, but like this tool for them has become incredible. They're, they're sharing cultural knowledge in different ways. And, uh, I, so there was, uh, the actual founder of, of, um, of the actual original transitioner from the intranet that became the internet spoke and they asked him, they said, what was the thing, um, thing you thought would grow the most from, from internet? Because really in a sense, what we're talking about is this web of connectivity that is internet and now all the different windows that we're creating to, to use it. And he said, well, science, he said, I thought science would be the thing that would really benefit incredibly because of the ability to share information. And there's a lot of truth to that. And and they said, what did you not see coming? What was the thing you could not have predicted? And he said, cats. And they said, what do you mean? (laughs) He said, 18% of the entire bandwidth of the internet is dedicated to videos and films of cats and pets. And he said, I never would have thought that was the way it was used. So it was, it's quite, quite fascinating. You know, so 18% of the most incredible, uh, breakthrough that we've had is you know my cat and your dog (laughs) we've developed and evolved in leaps and bounds haven't we (laughs) yes yeah but it's it's um yeah so i think it's 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 critical to what you said about sharing and uh i was very lucky to be mentored by people that had an open so i call it just an open book approach they didn't have fear of sharing some secret there was a whole clandestine group of photographers and creators that were like, I'm not going to tell you the secrets of my lighting or the secrets of my this. And <laughs> I found that the people that were really, really good were the opposite. They were like, oh, yeah, I did this, I did that, because there's no way that you can actually replicate what they do because there's so much intricacy to it. And they also get curious about what you might do given their tools. And um, so I, you know, I've been very open with questions about my lighting. There's no big tricks. Uh, you know, a lot of, lot of it, you know, there's something new. and the amazing thing that's happened through Instagram, social, and just the ability to share images and digital cameras is when I was entering the, the field, there was a barrier to entry that was actually just money. I had to basically sell everything and go into deep debt in order to own a camera, in order to process film, in order to play, right? So this was, and then I got the film back and the film sucked. And then I was like, okay, now for relatively few bucks, you know, even in your camera, everybody's a player. And a lot of photographers in some sense and uh, directors were annoyed about the advent of digital and how, you know, I, we're talking today about what, what kind of camera you can get for a thousand bucks. It's just incredible what it can do compared to, you know, 10 years ago. And, but the great thing that's happened is you've seen this talent that would not have had a voice, would not have had a visibility, have had a chance. And they've, you know, purely through social, the ability to share their work. And people are electing them. They're not there. So they're not having to face a guy saying you're never going to work in their city, which I think is great. They're actually being judged by peers. They're being judged by, um, you know, by an audience. Um, and also the same time having to put on that wall of steel because, uh, you know, on social, you know, if you read the comments, you might want to go and sob in the corner for about, you know, half an hour every day. So I avoid that at all costs. So if you've ever made a comment, anything I've posted and I haven't responded, it's not personal. I just never read it. So, Russell, um, how do you get in the zone when you're shooting and, uh, you know, how do you stay there uh, if there are unfavorable or unexpected things that happen during a shoot? You never know where you're going to learn your skills. And I think 
having a background of working in a factory in Western Australia where you showed up, uh, you know, seven in the morning until five every day, no matter what, or you, or you got the boot, had your 10 minute break. Um, it rained, it shined, the, the shit, you know, it was 45 degrees or it was, or six degrees, but you showed up. So you learn from the most unexpected ways. And that's a part of the discipline of it. Um, being a cop brought a certain type of discipline. I never thought I, I joined the police force because I wanted to work with dogs. I love dogs. There was no job that offered the opportunity to work with dogs. Never got to work a day of my life in the police force with a dog, <laughs> but I, you know, the, it taught me another kind of structure, having to work, you know, from 11 at night until seven in the morning and, um, having to walk into the most crazy, absurd situation where everything's out of control and, you're supposed to be, the, you know, you want to start screaming and running around like everybody else. But I carry those traits onto my sets. I literally do. So sometimes you go to, you know, you did the clients invested a fortune. You've all gone to a mountaintop. You've gone there. You get there. You've got a snowstorm and it's in, in, in unshootable or the model's trapped in some place. They've missed a connection. But you've just got to logically process like, well, everyone else is just, you know, this has all gone to hell. It's not going to work. You've got to say there are things we can do. And we're going to go on and we're going to do some stuff. And this is what's going to happen. And um, I, I think it goes back to the very same thing that makes you keep going to meetings, makes you, you know, take the criticism and turning up. It's the same thing that I try to take on set. It's um, don't let anyone make you in a, put you in a bad mood. I, if someone comes on set and they're completely obnoxious, um, I let that just be water off a duck's back um, up until the point where I have to tell them, now you have to really be quiet. Um, but I, I look at that as a challenge and, um, and, and try to look at it in a positive way of like whatever is, is going to happen today to stand in the way of getting where I want to go, I, we're going to have to figure out how to get around it and go on. We're not going to stop. Mm. That's the only thing we're not going to do is we are not going to stop and we're going to deliver something of very high quality. Yeah, it's really uh, honing in on that purpose, isn't it? Uh, and and the objective of, of or, or the intent rather of, of uh, what you're looking to achieve for, for that client and for the people on set. Um, in terms of portrait photography, uh, going to a more technical uh, question here, uh, are there any uh, rules or staple principles that you rarely break uh, that we can use and keep in mind? I mean, you've, you've shot some of the most beautiful uh, models in the world. Uh, being in that position of uh, a main photographer uh, or the main photographer, if I'm not mistaken, of Victoria's Secret. Uh, can you share to us any portrait photography tips? Yeah, I think the most important one is um, sincerity and a true interest in connecting with the person that you're photographing. So whether you're photographing a, a top model who's just used to being photographed every day, so that the challenge there is uh, I call it glazed eyes. You know, you're going to, they're so used to being photographed, they're going to give you their look 101 because, you know, they've got the clothes on, they're ready to go. They, you know, they're going to do this sort of the, the things they think you want. But there is no way to cheat the camera. And to me, a good photograph is when you can feel the connection where it feels like the person, either you've caught a true moment or the person looking at you in such a way that they're not looking at the camera with the glazed eyes as if they're looking at an audience, that they're actually looking if you get the feeling they're looking at the camera, that's what translates to a, to someone looking at it on a wall later on where they feel like this person is looking at me. It's a very special feeling. So I'd say take the time to have a real and meaningful conversation with the people. Um, it doesn't have to be peace and war, but um, I, you know, I find it what, um, uh, giving sort of broad examples. If I'm shooting President Clinton, um, 
former President Bill Clinton the male, <laughs> as opposed to possibly um, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, who we, uh, may possibly be the next President of the United States. You know, there's a man obviously photographed all day, every day, but you still got to find something. For me, it was around his passion for um, we uh, had worked on a documentary together about the, the first free slave nation to rise up and build a citadel in order to protect themselves and form a nation and just his passion around that. So we start, I started speaking about that while I was doing a printship with him and then the connection was real because he was so absolutely engaged. And, and it's the same with the girls. I try to talk about how you're doing, what's going at home, mum, dad, boyfriend, what's happening. And I look for a real moment and then bring the camera into the equation and then start to shoot but not lose that feeling. Um, and, it, you know, I think it's about bringing everything to a calm place, not to a, okay, now we're going to make this amazing picture. That's the worst. That's the easiest way to kill a great shot. Totally. Yeah. I think that's really, that's really powerful. It's just the sincerity of, of setting that up Yes. Um, and not sort of uh, placing it in your version of what you think could make them comfortable, but kind of just almost talking to them like a friend at first. Yeah. Uh, I think that, yeah, that's really great. Control of environment, very important. If, you know, obviously at the end of the day, there's a lot of technical people around, there's art directors, all kinds of people around, and they're on a fake set usually. So there's a whole lot of fakeness going on. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, I try to get them to connect across all of that so that just at the moment you're shooting, it's genuine, whatever position, whatever shape, whatever it may be. And uh, it's it's a, a very big, big part of, I'd say, with a portrait photography and it's especially, you know, whether you're shooting a young child, you know, relate on a child level, um, you know, squat down. To, um, and as we all know, the, 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 if you want to make a kid be difficult to be photographed, tell them you want to take a picture. <laughs> so I usually start the shoot off by giving them the camera and say, can you take my picture? Mm. And they're holding this big, massive camera and they're wobbling around and people are like, you're giving the kid, you know, the kid's vibe. He's going to drop the camera. I'm like, well, we got another one. If he drops it, he drops it. <laughs> um, but, you know, they just love that responsibility of holding it and clicking and hearing it going, you know, they're shooting all over the place. And I'm like, look, let me have my go. And then I have a go. And then so I think connection, authenticity, taking that time is really important if you want to have a successful portrait shoot of anybody. You've had five solo photography books under your belt. Uh, is that correct, uh, Russell? Five photography books to this point? Yes. Yeah, so, yes. To, yeah. Published books. Yes. Yeah. And uh, your first one, I believe, is titled Russell James, uh, 2009. Uh, it has forwards by Heidi Klum and Donna Karan. Uh, your second one, uh, entitled V2, it has forwards by Victoria's Secret's President Edward Razek and even Sir Richard Branson. And, you know, your third one, Nomad Two Worlds, uh, released in 2012, has a forward by Hugh Jackman. Uh, what is your advice on connecting with key influencers uh, for those that want to create more credibility with their work and their brand? It's, it's, I mean, the way and the, and the reason that you connect with those people is over real things. Um, they, they're not, you know, would you write me my forward of my book? There's history that you have with them. So stating an obvious one, Ed, uh, Ed Razek, who's the president of Victoria's Secret and, you know, gave me my first break in that space, but we are great friends across many things. And he's a great mentor and puts me in my place often, uh, when I'm going off the tracks creatively, like really helps me to keep it together. Um, Richard Branson, I met, uh, through 
through Nomad Two Worlds, my the foundation, and I was, I, you know, I asked him legitimate questions. I said, I'm trying to make a difference through a foundation. I'm trying to figure out how I use the only thing I'm good at to uh, move the dial in terms of um, this great inequality that I see. And he started to talk to me about socially conscious business as an approach and became something that meant to me. And by the way, the guy likes fun and I happen to like fun. So he's a, he's a great practical joker. And I ended up spending a lot of time on his island and have photographed there many times. And so it's not just sort of happenstance, but I'd say it goes all the way back to the, to I've met these people through photography for one reason or another, or through philanthropic endeavor or through business. But when you connect with them, it's because you connect in a real way. Um, I think the last thing, especially in this, I would call it the celebrity space, something that I think is is very common to celebrities is people like, oh my God, I'm your biggest fan. I just love what you're doing so much. And it's not, it's not like that's untrue. And I, you know, I go into a room and I, you know, if I see Tom Hanks, I want to run over and over and say, hi, Forrest Gump. I loved it so much. But I'm like, <laughs> I restrain myself. And, um, I, you know, my first comment by, might be, you know, g'day, Tom. Now you guys live up by, you know, up on the, near the canyon, right? So, yeah. So they've been having that craziness with the water. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, it's, I think it's about, um, it's about reality and not trying to connect with people because of what they do or who they are. It's trying to connect with people just as people to find out if there is a common interest. Yeah. Um, I guess the, for me anyway, the, the thing that I had found, um, to utilize in that space, uh, is that the mix of what you already kind of tapped into the showing up, but also just being patient. Um, you know, you don't get to starting out as a photographer and then just hopping on Richard Branson's Island. Um, no, you really don't. You know, I guess there's been many, um, rapport building, I guess you could say with other people in his circles as well. And, um, you know, connecting with, uh, not just influencers, but just, um, I guess meeting people within your industry, within your space. And it's kind of that whole hop, skip and jump, the zigzag, um, that gets you there. And I think, um, it's really easy for us to forget that people like yourself have, have been doing the hop, skip and jump for decades. It wasn't, um, immediate if you will. Oh yeah. You know, look, and you know, relationships are ongoing. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a, you, there's a network of like-minded people. And the thing that the common thread to all of this um, quite honestly, for me, it's creativity, you know, I mean, from different genres and different spaces, you know, Hugh's, um, passion, everything that drives him is in my opinion, you know, it's just, you see him light up around a, a performance or a show or, you know, that, that everything around it, not the fact of being on stage in front of the spotlight, but it's, it's the whole process that he loves. Richard Branson is just passionate about, he's passionate about the world. He's about causes, but it's just the way he approaches business and marketing is is creativity, pure creativity. So there's a common denominator, and it's fun to learn in someone else's space. It's also kind of fascinating to me when they someone turns around to you because you feel like I can have nothing to offer this person. They're like, "Oh boy, I wish I could take a photo like you take a photo. Do you think you could take a photo of my friend like that?" And, and you're like, "What? That? You, say, you don't know what to say." <laughs> like, "Yes, of course I'll try. You know, I'll try and do my best." But um, yeah, you know, I think relationship building is a lifetime process you should be doing it until the day you die and it's worth it 
um, you shouldn't be doing it just for networking for business success reasons. If you're doing it for authentic reasons, it's going to make your life better. You'll have better creative outcomes because you'll uh, have the influence of people who have done incredibly well in different spaces. Yeah, love that. Uh, Russell, in 2009, you launched uh, a fine art project titled Nomad Two Worlds. You did already mention that you've got many uh, different uh, exhibitions. Uh, This one, Nomad Two Worlds, it's a global example of cultural collaboration and reconciliation in action, which I love. Uh, What was this all about and what did it mean to you? Um, It meant a heck of a lot and it still does. It it was really, um, it begins, that was the first time there was a collaborative exhibition in 2009 in New York, which was, um, which was a result of many things happening. But after I'd had, quote unquote, some success in New York, starting in about um, 1996 through to the, about the year 2000, um, you tend to get asked to participate in a lot of uh, charities and a lot of things and do things for really good reasons. And people explain to you like, hey, I'm working on this thing around environment. I'm working on this thing around health. Would you, would you come? Would you attend? Would you maybe donate a picture? I, it got me really thinking about what my, own, what my own issues were that I felt strongly about. And I felt strongly about a lot of the things presented to me. But I realized that I had a past that was not reconciled. And the past for me that was not reconciled was the conditions that I observed, particularly in around the Derby area, um, uh, in my childhood, which would be in, in the sort of mid seventies up there, and it was um, the life expectancy of Aboriginal people being some twenty five years less than um, than a, a non Aboriginal person, which made no sense at all. It, it was rationalised as though that was just a genetic thing, but it had nothing to do with it. It was uh, there was this great injustice, and there was uh, so that's really what got me thinking about it, and I wanted to think of it in a positive light. And I began an exploration that was, I didn't understand it. I'm not well-educated, you know, openly admit to that. I wish I'd spent more times in the book. So I had to learn it from the beginning. And the only way I really learned it was by going to the people that were affected and understanding what forced relocation was and how it happened all over the world, not just in Australia, what what the impact was, um, how we accidentally created ghettos. They thought they were solving problems. Everyone on both sides thought they were doing the right thing. So Nomad Two Worlds for me became, um, in 2009, was I collaborated with artists from Northwest Australia, from Haiti, from Native American communities where I would go to their communities, take photographs of things of cultural significance, blow those up into giant canvases, and then ask artists from those regions to paint story back into it. And we created stories together. This op- these openings were supported by people like Hugh Jackman, Anna Wintour, and all these people that could bring a certain type of presence. But we really wanted it to be about the artists and their stories and their families and everything around it. And so it became something of an artistic movement. And it travelled to Berlin. It travelled to the National Gallery of Victoria. Um, pe- different people got on board for different reasons. Black Eyed Peas decided to adopt this whole theme of reconciliation through art. Um, and a tour they did at the time, at the peak of their absolute sort of presence. And um, Richard Branson thought we're really onto something because it, it stimulated emotion and both sides were playing. And a lot of my friends were from different cultures and I was hearing the other side and um, we're really beginning to collaborate. By the year 2012, that migrated into what I call a socially conscious business where we actually set up a company that we said we wanted it to be a collaborative business that collaborates with different people and different cultures that have raw ideas and raw creativity and raw story that want to develop it 
into a modern market where we have the other skill set. We have distribution, we have branding, we have marketing. So, and that's been a great collaboration. And that, so we've got Nomad Two Worlds, the foundation that supports things like Dreamtime project in Australia. We're trying to bolster our support for that now um, in uh, an upcoming fundraiser. Um, Desert Feet, which is an amazing grassroots initiative in uh, Australia that goes out to communities with a uh, a vehicle that is fitted out as a sound recording vehicle and and records music on the ground in a real grassroots way. And yeah, so that for me has become, I'd say, where I found my true passion, my true true calling. And that's where my 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 passion for preservation of culture really comes from. Yeah, and that really comes through, Russell. And uh, you know, that's that's one of the things that uh, I really admire about you. And and uh, you know, your Twitter handle is has the word nomad in it. It obviously <laughs> um, is a movement and is something special. Instagram took it away. They made me up Russell James. <laughs> I said I want my name back. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, yes, right. they contacted me and said yes. We've, well, you know, we want to give you some good news. We've given you your own name. I'm like, <laughs> but my name's Nomad RJ. Just one moment. Ozzy, shut up. <laughs> Got to deal with the dog. Just a moment. I'll leave that in there. I'll leave that in there. <laughs> Russell James, for those listening, has just left the room to handle the dog. And in true Aussie fashion, he was wearing board shorts. We'll just wait for him to come back. Here he is. All right, we've restored order. <laughs> Sorry. Fantastic. I was just uh, filling the gap with some commentary. So okay, uh, let's let's leave that in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> couple more questions for you, Russell, before we uh, wind up here. A question I ask most of my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Russell, perhaps the youngster finishing high school, what would you tell him? I think that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> a, a dramatic pause. Jump back 30 seconds. What I'd tell him, I'd say, I would say absolutely believe in yourself. Absolutely. Um, don't let the critics take you astray. Fantastic, mate. And who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? You know, maybe that person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential. So many people, my partner, Ali Franco, you know, is just an incredible support in that way and just incredible, just inspiration. Um, and then, you know, so, sort of on the, on the big stage, people like Richard Branson, I'm not talking about the Richard Branson that we see um, sort of on stage. I'm talking about who the true person is. And they inspire me because they're so passionately interested, um, you know, about any subject that may come up. Mm. There's curiosity. So there are so many people that, that truly inspire me. And I think over the most recent years, um, yeah, they just keep coming by and you just never know who they're going to be. And what's next for you now, Russell, uh, with everything uh, you're involved in for this year and beyond? Okay. So there's a lot going on. We have a, an art exhibition launching uh, that is a new book. You'll be bored to hear, but it'll be a very large <laughs> limited edition. We'll preview that at Art Basel in Florida in, um, in December. Uh, I'm going to Turkey, a country that I've grown to have a great affection with from a landscape and from a, uh, a point of view to work on uh, 
helping to brand certain aspects of that country. It's an astonishing country. I am doing, yes, Victoria's Secrets is in there and, um, and, you know, portraits of people from all different walks of life are definitely in there. And probably most significantly, Nomad, Nomad Two Worlds, our, both our foundation and our business, uh, has really found its feet. And we're trying to grow that as quickly and aggressively as we can. So I don't know how I'm going to get time to do all of those things I just spoke to. I got exhausted just thinking of what's ahead of us. But, um, you know, there's there's time for everything. That's really exciting stuff. Um, mate, how can listeners get in touch with you online? Oh, pretty simple. Um, definitely don't leave me a message on uh, on Instagram because I, I don't read the, the comments because I know that I'll be horribly criticized. Um, you can get in. The best way to reach me is uh, through uh, you can direct message me through in something like Instagram. I do look at those, and that's just simply Russell James, and um, that's probably the easiest, best way. And we do keep things updated through the site. Um, I have people email me, you know, and I do my best to answer them anytime. Thank you so much, Russell. Mate, um, it's been an absolute honor uh, speaking to one of the great photographers and visionaries uh, of our time, uh, you know, in fact, in the last two to three decades. So grateful. So grateful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much for your curiosity and really appreciate it. And I'm taking that line that you taught me. That's a really good one. Take it. It's yours. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much. All the best. How good was that? I loved Russell's openness and the transparency he shared about the incredible mentors he's been lucky enough to learn from. It was also nice to have a guest appearance from his dog in there too, getting in on the action. Now, I have another cracking guest lined up for the next episode. He is the Chief Creative Officer of Squarespace and since joining in 2013 has masterminded three Super Bowl commercials. He's previously headed up the creative divisions of TBWA Worldwide, Pilot.is, Whedon and Kennedy, and AKQA. He has been recognized by almost every prestigious industry award out there, including the Khan's Cyber Lions, ADC, One Show, D&AD, Webby Awards, and South by Southwest Interactive. Now, before you race off, I do encourage you to check out freshbooks.com slash giant, especially if you're running a business or freelancing. You know, it wasn't too long ago that working for yourself was looked down upon. There was a stigma that one couldn't get a real job, but that's no longer true. Today, one in three Americans are self-employed. The trend is growing, and by 2020, this group could grow to be over 40% of the US workforce. Millennials are 54 million strong, the largest generational slice of the workforce who change employers every two and a half years. And millennials are more inclined towards self-employment. Perhaps they, or we should I say, grasp the potential and possibility of an always connected world. So check out freshbooks.com slash giant if you're after a cloud-based accounting solution to your business and you'll get 30 days of unrestricted use via that link. Alrighty, Giants, that's it for this episode. Next time you hear from me, I will be in the US of A for my book tour and absolutely cannot wait to meet some of you in the flesh. Head on over to giantthinkers.com slash events to check out which cities I'm visiting. Until then, take care and don't forget to do something that makes you laugh out loud today. 